Moses. The death of Joseph marks the end of the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And now we come to consider the greatest figure of the Old Testament, the towering figure of the great Moses. It was 400 years since Jacob had come to Egypt, he and his extended family, and had been granted to live in Egypt, in the province of Jason, by the pharaoh of that time. It's however believed that the pharaohs at the time of Joseph and Jacob were in fact uh, the leaders of a conquering race who had taken the throne of Egypt and at a later stage were cast out by the native Egyptians. This would explain the difference in attitude that the pharaohs then, at a later stage, took towards the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob. As well as that, of course, in these 400 years, because now we are reaching the year 1500 and entering into the realms of recorded history, that uh, the Jews... Uh, what we now call the Jews, that the, Israel, that, that, that the Israelites had increased to a considerable number, something like 600,000. They therefore posed in the minds of the Egyptians a considerable problem. Here there were this large group of non-Egyptians in the population, and the native population, as so often happens, feared that somehow or other they would be a subversive element and that in times of trouble, in times of war, that they would turn against the Egyptians and be sympathetic towards their enemies. So as the Bible tells us that after the death of Joseph, a long time after the death of Joseph, about 150 years afterwards, that there came a new pharaoh who ruled over Egypt, who did not know the blessings which Joseph had brought upon the land. And the Israelites increased in number, and the king became jealous of their prosperity and their strength, and feared lest they should take part with any foreign power who might invade Egypt. But he would not consent to them leaving the country either, and preferred to retain them as slaves. In order to reduce their numbers, he forced them to toil beyond their strength in brick-making and in other laborious tasks concerning great building works which were taking place uh, throughout Egypt at this particular time of prosperity. But the more that the Israelites were oppressed, the more quickly that they multiplied, until at last Pharaoh resolved to have every newborn child of the Hebrews to be thrown into the river Nile. Soon afterwards, a son was born to Aram of the tribe of Levi and his wife Jochebed. The child was of unusual beauty and Jochebed managed to hide him for three months. But of course, eventually she found that it was impossible to keep the child any longer in concealment. And so she made a basket of bulrushes and daubed it with pitch and put the baby in, and laid it in the sedges by the river's bank. And she left her child, Mary, Miriam, to see what would happen. By an amazing, uh, astonishing circumstance of providence, it so happened that the daughter of Pharaoh came down to the river with her maids and walked by the river's brink. And she saw the basket among the reeds, and so she sent one of her maids for it out of curiosity. And when it was brought, she saw within it an infant, and the child wept. And the princess had compassion upon it, and said, This is one of the babes of the Hebrews. 
the child's sister then appeared and asked her, shall I go and call a nurse? And the princess said to her, go. And she went and she got the mother of Moses and her own mother to come and to offer to, to nurse the child for the daughter of the Pharaoh. They, the, the, the princess, of course, had no idea that the woman was the child's mother and she gave him to her to nurse and even adopted him as her own child, calling him by the name of Moses, which means saved from the water. Here we can see how already God had disposed things to prepare for Moses' great protection and had already predicted him by his wonderful providence. When he was 40 years old and had been brought up really as a prince among the Egyptians, but having been brought up not by the Egyptians alone, although he was versed in all the in all the science of the Egyptians, he was also brought up in the consciousness of having been born a Hebrew by his own mother. And therefore he had this sympathy for his own people, who at that time were labouring as slaves. And when he was 40 years old, he saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, and when he had looked round and found no one about, he slew the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. The next day he saw two Hebrews quarrelling and decided to reconcile them. When one of the men who was in the uh, in, in, one of the men in the quarrel who happened to be in the wrong, said to him in anger, "Wilt thou kill me as thou didst kill the Egyptian yesterday?" On hearing this, Moses was filled with fear and he dared not return to the palace of the Pharaoh. But he fled at once into the land of Midian, where he married the daughter of Jethro, the priest of the country, and became a shepherd to his father-in-law. It's an amazing thing that here Moses should have intervened on behalf of one of these slaves. And it's a more remarkable thing that having, having killed him, that he should have fled. No doubt he, he feared that a, uh, the action which he had taken would have been sensational, being uh, a part of the royal household himself. It would have been a public act against the pharaoh and would have probably in the end revealed a, uh, the circumstances of his own birth. And so therefore he was forced, or he felt he was forced, to flee into the desert and there lead a life which is completely different from the palace life of Egypt and become a simple shepherd. On one occasion when he was driving the flocks into the inner parts of the desert, he came to Mount Horeb. And here God appeared to him. And here God breaks his silence for, as we've said, a period of over 400 years that the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush, a bush which attracted Moses' attention, not merely because it was a bush burning, but because it was a bush which was not being consumed, a bush which continued to burn in, the, in these very, very dry parts of the desert and was not rapidly consumed as would normally have been the case. He went closer to it, and he heard the voice of God calling him, Moses, Moses. And then, as he came closer, God said to him, Put off thy shoes, for the ground on which thou standest is holy. And the voice continued and said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, because he did not dare look at God. God then commanded him to go to the elders of Israel and to tell them that God had appeared to him and appointed him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses, however, was filled with fear and did not wish to go. And, they, and said to God, they will not believe me, 
Now they will neither hear my voice, but they will say, God has not appeared to thee. God therefore vouchsafed to perform a miracle to convince him, and as a pledge of the miracles which Moses himself should work in the land of Egypt. So he asked Moses to cast the rod which he carried in his hand upon the ground, and in an instant it was changed into a serpent. Then he made him take it by the tail, and it was turned again back into a rod. And again God said to him, Put thy hand into thy bosom. And Moses did so, and he pulled it out, and he found that it was white with leprosy. And God said, Put it back into thy bosom. And he brought it out again, and found it healed. Moses then objected that he had a speech impediment, in spite of, in spite of these wonders which God had done. And God said to him, Who made man's mouth? I did. You will be able to. You will be able to speak. And besides, a, uh, if you cannot and you feel you cannot, then your brother Aaron a, uh, is a good speaker and he will speak for you. So Moses returned to Jethro, who was his father-in-law, and told him that he was about to visit his brethren in Egypt. And he took his wife and his sons who had born to him, and with the rod in his hand he returned to Egypt. And as he came towards Egypt, he was met again providentially by his brother Aaron, who was eloquent in speech, and who was therefore appointed by God to be the companion of Moses in his interviews with the Pharaoh because of the impediments which Moses had in his own speech. The past of Moses, of course, would have made it possible and easy for him to enter into the palace of Pharaoh because it's hard to see how otherwise he could have appeared before this great personage in order to plead for the slaves. And so when Moses and Aaron went into him and said to him, the God of the Hebrews has called us to go three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord our God, Moses laughed, the Pharaoh laughed at them and bade them to go about their own labours instead of hindering the people from their appointed tasks. And the king was so annoyed at their interference that he gave orders to make the work of the Israelites even more severe than they had been before. So Moses visited the king again, and he threatened him with punishments if he refused to obey the commandments of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he refused to let the people go. And therefore God sent upon the Egyptians, one after another, because of Pharaoh's obstinacy, no less than ten plagues. The first the, was the plague whereby the waters of the Nile were changed into blood. The second was a plague of frogs upon the land. Then a plague of, of mosquitoes. Then of flies then a moraine among the cattle, then boils on men and on beasts. Then there was a great fall of hail, which destroyed everything which was in the fields, followed by a plague of locusts, and then a plague of darkness, which was so horrible that no one dared leave from where he stood. And all these plagues having no effect on Pharaoh, although he wavered, he never finally agreed to release the people, eventually God declared that he would slay all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. However, previous to the infliction of this last plague, Moses gave orders to the Israelites to make ready for their departure from Egypt. And at the command of God, he told them that they were to take in their families each a lamb without a spot, a lamb unblemished, and eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, and with their garments girt around them and staves in their hands, ready to start on their journey. When the lamb was slain, the people were to take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood of the lamb and sprinkle the doorposts of each of their houses. God promised them that the destroying angel whom he was about to send to smite the Egyptians would see the blood and would pass over the house and leave its inhabitants in peace. 
This lamb and the blood, of course, is a figure of the blood of our blessed Lord, whose blood is to save mankind from eternal death. Just as the blood of the Paschal and the Passover lamb sprinkled on the Israelites' doors saved them from the stroke of the avenging angel. And then God spoke to Moses and bade him to enjoin the people to keep this feast, the feast of the Paschal, the Paschal lamb, with the same solemnity year by year forever afterwards as a memorial of their wonderful deliverance from this slavery in Egypt. And this, of course, is a practice which the Jews continue up until the present time. And God said, when your children shall say to you, what's the meaning of this service? You will say to them, it is the victim of the passage of the Lord when he passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, striking the Egyptians and saving our houses. After the Israelites had eaten of the, this great and wonderful feast, the angel of the Lord passed through Egypt and destroyed the firstborn of every house that was not sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb. And a great cry arose throughout the whole land of Egypt, for there was not an Egyptian house in which there was not someone dead. And Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron in the night and said, Arise and go forth from among my people, you and the children of Israel. Go and sacrifice to the Lord as you say. And the whole multitude of the Israelites, numbering no less than 600,000 besides uh, 600,000 men, besides women and children, <coughs> together with their sheep and their herds, set out from the town of Ramesses and journeyed towards Sukkoth. Thus the children of Israel, after 430 years, passed out of the land of their bondage. The presence of God was with them, and he was their guide and their protector, and he showed this protection by his constant appearance before them in the form of a pillar of cloud which went before them by day and which shone as a pillar of fire by night. However, they were scarcely gone from the borders of Egypt when Pharaoh began to repent and regret what he had so, that he had so easily allowed them to leave. Therefore he gathered together an army of war chariots and horsemen and pursued the Israelites with the utmost speed. And when the Egyptians appeared, the Israelites were enormously alarmed and they reproached Moses with having brought them into this difficulty. But Moses bade them stand firm and see the wonders which God would work, promising that this would be the last sight that they would have of the Egyptians. And at that point, the pillar of cloud now passed from the front to the rear of the Israelites and so prevented the Egyptians from coming into contact with them. Then Moses stretched his hand over the Red Sea and God caused a strong burning wind to blow all night and the water rose up as walls on either side while in the midst there was a dry path. Into this the Israelites entered and they passed through in safety to the opposite shore. And the Egyptians pursuing went in after them, and all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen into the midst of the sea. And then, when Moses had stretched forth his hand towards the sea, after the Hebrews had passed, the waters returned and covered all the army of Pharaoh, and so that neither there was not so much as one of them remained. Then Moses and all the people sang to God a song of praise, and his sister and the Jewish women went out, dancing with timbrels, and saying, Let us sing to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he hath driven into the sea. Moses now led them on towards the desert of Seir, because God had led them through the long way into the desert. They did not take the direct route back to the promised land, because it would have been too dangerous and they would have encountered many enemies and much opposition. So he took them by another route so that they could enter into the promised land by a far less protected border. They marched three days through the wilderness, but they found no water there. And when they arrived at Mara, they found that the water was so bitter that they could not drink it. And the people, again, began to murmur against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Moses prayed, and the Lord showed him a tree, which, when cast into the water, rendered it sweet. 
When they'd gone far into the wilderness, they began to murmur still more, seeing that there was no food, and they wished that they had remained and died in Egypt. However, instead of punishing them for their want of confidence, God sent them that very same evening an abundance of quails, and the next morning a delicious white food fell from heaven. And when the Israelites saw it, they exclaimed, Manu, which means, what is this? And Moses told them that it was the bread which the Lord gave them. It fell six days of the week, but not on the Sabbath day. On the sixth day, there fell a double quantity. And that which fell on the first five days became bad if it was kept beyond that day. But that which fell on the sixth day remained perfectly fresh and sweet during two days. God commanded that a pot of manna should be preserved so that future generations might know the bread with which their fathers had been fed during the 40 years in the wanderings in the, in the, in the desert. And it's not hard to see, of course, in this manna, a figure of the Holy Eucharist, of that bread which comes from heaven, that bread which feeds us in our own journey here in the wilderness of this world, during the journey of our own lives, as we go towards the land which Almighty God has promised to us, the kingdom of heaven. And so henceforth, this manna became a symbol of the heavenly bread which was to come and has come in our days. At Rephidim, the Israelites fought their very first battle. They were attacked by the Amalekites, and Moses said to Joshua, Choose out men and go out and fight against Amalek. During the battle, Moses prayed on the top of a hill, and as long as his hands were uplifted, the Israelites were victorious. But when through fatigue he let them sink, they lost. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and, Mo and Aaron and Hua stayed up his hands on both sides. Joshua put Amalek and his people to flight by the edge of the sword and by the hands of Moses. Once again, it's not very hard to see how our enemies are overcome by the sign of the cross, that Moses with arms outstretched, of course, is so beautifully represented here as a symbol of our blessed Lord, whose cross saves us from our enemies. On the third month after their departure from Egypt, the Israelites came to Mount Sinai, and there they rested. Moses went up into the mountain, and God appeared to him there, and commanded him to go down to the people, and remind them of all the wonders that he had wrought on their behalf, and that if they would keep his law, they would continue to be his chosen people. So Moses assembled the elders of the people and told them what God had said, and all the people answered together, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Then Moses went again up the mountain, and the Lord told him that the children of Israel should sanctify and purify themselves from all defilements that might render them unfit to appear in his presence. Then they were to come again on the third day to the foot of the mountain, but barriers were to be placed around it, so lest perhaps any of them should approach too near to it and die. So on the third morning, there was thunder and lightning around the mountain, and a thick cloud covered its top. And there pealed forth an awful blast of a trumpet, which sounded louder and louder, and the people below on the plain feared exceedingly. Then was heard the voice of God, speaking from the cloud that covered the mountain, and saying, I am the Lord thy God, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, and out of the house of bondage. 1. Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. Thou shalt not make to thyself any graven thing, nor the likeness of anything that is in heaven above, nor in the earth beneath, nor of those things that are in the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not adore them, nor serve them. I am the Lord thy God, mighty and jealous, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. 2. 
Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that shall take the name of the Lord his God in vain. 3. Remember that thou keep holy the Sabbath day. Six days shalt thou labour and shalt do all thy works, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt do no work on it. Thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy beast, nor the stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and the sea, and all things that are in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day, and sanctified it. 4. Honour thy father and thy mother, that thou mayest be long lived upon the land which the Lord thy God will give thee. 5. Thou shalt not kill. 6. Thou shalt not commit adultery. 7. Thou shalt not steal. 8. Thou shalt not bear witness against thy neighbour. 9. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's wife. 10. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's house nor his servant, nor his handmaid, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is his. And the people, trembling with fear at the foot of the mountain, cried out to Moses, Speak thou to us, and we will hear. Let not the Lord speak to us, lest we die. Moses told them that the Lord had come down to instil fear into their hearts, that they might not sin. After this, Moses again ascended the mountain and remained there for forty days and forty nights, conversing with God. And when God had finished speaking with Moses, he gave him two tables of stone, on which were written the Ten Commandments above, uh, above mentioned. Now the people, seeing that Moses did not come from the mountain as soon as they expected, rose up against Aaron and demanded that he would make gods to go before them. How quickly they had changed their minds. How quickly they had changed their attitude. They had just promised that all things which the Lord commanded they would do, and now they had decided to make themselves an idol. And Aaron, taking the golden earrings of the people and making them a molten calf, the people received it with joy, saying, these are thy gods, O Israel, that have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Astonishing change of heart. An amazing blasphemy. And the next morning they offered holocausts and sacrifices to the idol. And they began to eat and drink and dance after the manner of the pagan Egyptians. Meanwhile, Moses came down from the mountain with the two tables of stone, on which God himself had written the commandments. When he heard the shouts of the people and saw them dance before the golden calf, he threw the tables to the ground and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then laying hold on the idol, he burned it, and grinding it to powder, he scattered it in the water and made the Israelites to drink of it. And turning to Aaron, he reproved him severely for his evil deed. Then standing at the gate of the camp, he cried out, If any man be on the Lord's side, let him come to join with me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And Moses bade them go through the camp and slay the guilty without reference to kindred or friendship. And 23,000 of them were slain on that day. On the following day, Moses again ascended the mountain and earnestly entreated with God for his ungrateful people, saying, Forgive them this trespass, or, if thou do not, strike me out of the book which thou hast written. Moved by this appeal, God forgave the people and renewed his communication with them. And once again we see how the power of the intercession of Moses is a prefiguration of the intercession of our blessed Lord for us. While Moses was conversing with the Lord on the mountain, he received from him very definite directions regarding how he wished to be worshipped. And he gave orders concerning all of the ceremonies which were to accompany the worship of the true God. 
Moses, therefore, according to God's command, built a shrine or a tabernacle, a tent, which could be taken apart and carried about from place to place. Because, of course, the Israelites on their journey to the Promised Land could not build a permanent temple of stone or brick, but they had to have a tabernacle, a tent, which could be raised up and taken down at each place of their encampments. And it was to be made of the most precious wood. Its length was about 45 feet and its width about 15 feet. The boards were overlaid with plates of gold. It was to be divided into two parts, the forepart being larger, which was called the sanctuary, the first part, the first room in which one entered, and the innermost part, being much smaller, was called the Holy of Holies. The tabernacle was to stand at the further end of a large oblong enclosure, which was called the court of the tabernacle. And this court was about 150 feet long and 70 feet wide. It was to be enclosed by demountable pillars of brass, which were placed at regular intervals, and they were fastened curtains of linen between these pillars in order to create the enclosure. In the Holy of Holies was placed the Ark of the Covenant, and before the Holy of Holies, but within the sanctuary, was the altar of incense. It was made of satin wood covered with pure gold and stood about three feet high. On the right-hand side of this stood the table of showbread, and on which were laid twelve loaves of proposition, which were to be renewed by the priest every week. These twelve loaves symbolising the twelve tribes of Israel. And on the left hand was a seven-branched candlestick, which was to be made of pure gold. The Ark of the Covenant, which had been placed in the Holy of Holies, was a small chest of wood, which was entirely covered with plates of gold. And on the top of the Ark was the propitiatory, or mercy seat, which was made also of the purest gold. On either side of the mercy seat, there were two cherubim, two angels, on each side, bending, facing each other in adoration, with their wings extending over it. And the ark itself was to contain the tables of the law, which God had given to Moses, and after that a pot of manna was also placed in there by God's command, as a remembrance of the bread from heaven, with which he fed the people in the desert, and also Aaron's rod, of which we will speak later. At the command of God, Moses called Aaron and his sons, and he consecrated them solemnly to the office of the priesthood, and instructed them in the various duties as the Lord had commanded him. After this, Aaron offered sacrifice for himself and the people, laying the victims in order upon the altar. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the multitude, and a fire came down from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering, which, when the multitude saw, they fell upon their faces, praising God. It's a wonderful thing to see how God himself established all of the very rich ceremonial of the ancient law, and how wrong they are who condemn ceremonial in the worship of the true God, that these things are not some relic from pagan times brought up into our own, but actually commanded by God himself on the journey to, to the Promised Land to his mediator, Moses. And indeed, God was so intent that the ceremonies that he had uh, prescribed should be meticulously performed that he severely punished any infringement uh, of, of the execution of these. On one occasion, two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, lit their thuribles, lit their censers, with ordinary fire, instead of, as God had commanded, the fire which was to be taken from the altar of incense. And having lit the, the censers, and having offered incense to Almighty God, 
with the propane fire, as they offered it, God sent fire from heaven and struck them dead on the spot. Then Moses commanded that their bodies clothed as they were in their priestly garments were to be cast out of the camp, dishonoured, and he forbade their relations to mourn for them. How seriously is liturgical ceremonial taken by Almighty God? During the sojourn in the Israelites near Mount Sinai, a, uh, there was a woman who had a son who was not of the father of an Israelite, but rather of an Egyptian. And he quarreled with the, with the Israelite and blasphemed and cursed the name of God. And therefore he was put in confinement until Moses had inquired of God's will. And God said to Moses, Bring forth a blasphemer without the camp, and let them that heard him put their hands upon his head, and let all the people stone him. For he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, dying, let him die. So God is a jealous God, as he explained to the Israelites, as he explained to Moses, that there is to be one God and only one God, that they are not to go into the ways of the pagans, and that God is holy and he must be at all times honoured and respected. And he who will not respect the, his creator and Lord is to be condemned. About this stage in the story of Moses, the book of Exodus, which describes the wanderings of uh, the people of God in the desert on their exodus, on their, uh, on their leaving Egypt, uh, the story continues in the book of Numbers. And this book of Numbers is called the book of Numbers because it begins with the numbering of the Hebrews at this particular point in their history. When Moses numbered the people, he found them to be about 603,550 men, over 20 years of age, exclusive of the Levites. Moses marshaled these according to their tribes and appointed a prince to rule over each of them. And the following are the tribes. Reuben, Simeon, Judah, Issachar, Zabulon, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asa, Gad and Nephtali. On the 20th day, of the second month of the second year, their stay in the wilderness of Sinai, Sinai came to an end. And the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, and the Israelites broke up their encampment and prepared to start on their journey. The tabernacle was taken down, and its various parts distributed among the sons of Levi, after which the silver trumpet sounded for the march. The Kothites walked first, carrying the ark covered with a dark blue pall. And as it was raised up upon their shoulders, Moses cried out, Arise, O Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered. When the ark was set down at the place where they were to encamp, Moses exclaimed, Return, O Lord, to the multitude of the host of Israel. Unfortunately, during their wanderings in the desert, the Israelites frequently rebelled against the will of God. The first murmuring began on account of the fatigue caused by the journeyings, and the Lord destroyed great numbers of them by fire, and Moses called that place Tabara, which means burning. A certain number of the multitude that came out from Egypt yielded to a temptation to gluttony, and their example led the Israelites to murmur and complain about the food which God had given to them. They were tired of this incessant manner. And they said, who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the flesh that we ate in Egypt, free cost. Our soul is dry, our eyes behold nothing else but manna. They'd obviously forgotten that they were slaves in the land of Egypt and that they had been living on a subsistence diet. But, uh, of course, uh, Things take on a glamour uh, once they are passed, uh, and, the, uh, and they now were discontented with their present situation. Although God was angry with them, he nevertheless did send them a strong wind, which carried innumerable quails from beyond the sea. 
and the quails flew into the camp, about two cubits from the ground, and during two days vast numbers of them were caught and killed and dried for future use. Before the quails were consumed, however, God struck the Israelites with a plague, which destroyed great numbers of them in punishment for their gluttony. And uh, God said to Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the ancients of Israel, whom thou knowest to be ancients and masters of the people, and thou shalt bring them to the door of the tabernacle of the covenant, and I will take thy spirit and give it to them, that they may bear with thee the burden of the people. Now the work had become so great and so much for Moses, it was necessary that the responsibilities of its government should be should be shared. And this calling of God, of the elders of the people, is believed to be, is the beginning of the council of the Jews called the Sanhedrin. Even Aaron, the brother of Moses and Mary, his sister, spoke against him and said, Had the Lord spoken only by Moses? And the Lord therefore struck Mary with a leprosy. And although Moses prayed for her, she had to remain separated for seven days outside of the camp. When the Israelites had reached the desert of Pharaoh, Moses, by the command of God, chose a man from each of the twelve tribes to go into the promised land, so that they could view it and see what sort of land it was. And the people, whether they were strong or weak, few or many, The spies went by the south side to Hebron, which, if you remember, is a place where Abraham had dwelt and where where he had been buried and the other patriarchs, and remained away for forty days. And on their return, they made a report to Moses in the presence of all of the people of Israel. And they described the land as flowing with milk and honey. And in proof of this, Joshua and Caleb brought back a large bunch of grapes. The inhabitants were strong, And the cities were great and walled. And forgetting the power of God, ten of the spies dissuaded the people from going into the land. And they murmured against Moses and Aaron, saying, It's far better to return to Egypt. God therefore now threatened to destroy the whole people. But at the prayer of Moses, he spared them. But continued them to wander, condemned them to wander about the desert for another forty years. And the ten spies who spoke ill of the land were struck in the sight of the Lord and died. When the Israelites heard their sentence of exile, they determined that they would enter again into the land without Moses. And in spite of his warnings, but when they made the attempt, they were completely routed by the Canaanites and the Amalekites. Such is the perversity of human nature. First of all, struck by fear, refusing to go into the land, And then when they're punished for their fearfulness, for their lack of trust in Almighty God, after all, God had brought them here for the purpose of entering into the land of promise. When they were almost there on the point of entering, then they had no trust and no confidence in him that he would protect them. And therefore, he condemned them to spend another 40 years in the desert. And this is significant, of course, because it meant, therefore, that everyone... uh, everyone uh, who did enter into the land would be a new generation. That the old generations, everyone everyone above the age of 20, would already be dead by the time they were to enter into the promised land. And therefore, understanding the nature of their condemnation, then they, they decided to take the law into their own hands and to enter in a manner which was now contrary to the will of God, and so, of course, they paid the price. So we must always learn from this lesson the necessity of always following the dictates of providence, always having trust and confidence in Almighty God and in his power. It's so ironic that we so often have more confidence in our own power when, in fact, we are powerless than we have in the mighty hand of God. So... Again, they began a new wandering, this time a long wandering, and they continued to murmur and they continued to complain. 
and Kori of the tribe of Levi and Dathan and Abiram of the tribe of Reuben rose up against Moses and together with 250 others of the leading men of Israel and they accused Moses of ambition and they claimed equal rights for themselves and for the whole of Israel and they claimed even that they had the right to offer sacrifices to Almighty God in spite of the fact that they were not priests if you like a priesthood of the laity before the time and Cory and his companions who were Levites were commanded to take their censers and to put incense into them and stand before the Lord over and against Aaron and his sons Aaron and his sons of course who were priests when this was done Fire came down from the Lord and destroyed Cory and his companions. Dathan and Abiram did not come at the command of Moses, but remained in their tents with their wives and their children. And the Lord said to Moses, Command the whole people to separate themselves from the tents of Cory, Dathan and Abiram. And behold, while Moses was yet speaking, the earth opened and swallowed them up and all of their tents and sustenance, and they went down alive into hell. And the censers or the thuribles of Cory and his companions were beaten into plates and fastened on the altar as a memorial to the children of Israel. The following day, all the multitude of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron, saying, You've killed the people of the Lord. And the riot increased to such an extent that Moses and Aaron fled to the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord was again manifested and he threatened the entire destruction of the people. A plague broke out which destroyed 14,700 people. But Aaron ran with his censer between the living and the dead and the plague ceased. In view of all these trials and contradictions, in order to confirm Aaron's appointment to the priesthood and his sons, Almighty God worked a miracle in the sight of the people, so as to prevent his authority again being questioned. And he commanded Moses to take a rod for each of the twelve tribes, each rod having the name of one of the twelve tribes written upon it. And that representing Levi, had the name of Aaron upon it. These rods were placed in the tabernacle with the promise that one of them should blossom to show whom God had chosen for the priesthood. And the following day, Aaron's rod was found to have blossomed and was even bearing fruit, while the others remained as before. And this rod of Aaron was carried to the tabernacle and kept there as a token to the rebellions of children of Israel. At Kadesh, the Israelites were in want of water, and as usual, again, they murmured against Moses and Aaron. God told Moses to speak to the rock, which should at once yield water. But Moses, becoming tired and becoming impatient with all the trials and contradictions which he was constantly having to endure, lost patience, and he took the rod and struck the rock, which at once yielded an abundance of water. But although Almighty God worked the miracle, he condemned Moses and Aaron to die in the desert for their impatience and for their want of confidence in him and for their disobedience and striking the rock instead of speaking to it. Once again, we've got to learn how we must strive constantly to serve Almighty God on his own terms and not on our own. The Israelites then removed the camp from Kadesh to the, found, uh, to the foot of Mount Hor on the border of Edom. And Moses, at the command of God, ascended Mount Hor, accompanied by Aaron in his priestly robes and his son Eleazar. When they had arrived at the top, Moses took off the sacred vestments from Aaron and put them on Eleazar and thus solemnly invested him with the high priesthood. Immediately upon this, Aaron died at the age of 122 years. And the multitude, seeing that Aaron was dead, mourned for him for 30 days. The people, again being weary of their journey, 
even although the 40 years were drawing to their close and the promised land was again in sight, they began to complain to Moses, saying, Why dost thou bring us out of the land of Egypt to die in the wilderness? And upon this the Lord sent upon them the people, upon the people fiery serpents, which bit and killed many of them. And they repented, and they begged Moses to intercede for them. And he was commanded by God to make a brazen serpent and set it up for a sign, that whosoever being bitten should look upon it and should live. And our Lord himself was later on in the Gospels to refer to this brazen serpent, this lifted up, and to see a, in it a type of his crucifixion, that whosoever should look upon it, it should be healed. And that's why the brazen serpent is also a symbol which has been adopted by the medical profession and the practice of, uh, of doctors. The Israelites had now reached the plains of Moab near Jericho on the other side of the Jordan from the promised land and they were encamped on the land that they had taken from the Amorites. Balak, the king of Moab, seeing that the Israelites had overcome the neighbouring nations was terrified and he determined to call to his aid Balaam, a celebrated prophet who dwelt in Mesopotamia. He sent messengers to Balaam, offering great rewards if he would come and curse the children of Israel. Almighty God allowed Balaam to go, but warned him to say only what he himself, that God, should put into his mouth. And as he was going, an angel stood in the way of the ass on which he rode. Balaam did not see the angel at first, and as the beast refused to proceed, the prophet beat her with all his might. Then God opened the mouth of the ass, and she said, What have I done to thee? Why strikest thou me? Lo, now at this third time. Balaam answered and said, Because thou hast deserved it, thou hast served me ill. I would that I had a sword that I might kill thee. And the ass said, Am I not thy beast, on which thou hast always been accustomed to ride? Tell me, if I ever did the like to thee. And he said, Never. And the Lord opened the eyes of the prophet, and he saw the angel standing with a drawn sword, who said, If the ass had not turned out of the way, I would have slain thee. This very curious story illustrates to us the fact that very often dumb creatures, who are of course not by any merit of their own, but simply by the, by the way that they have been made, follow the dictates of divine providence better than human beings who are so perverse and can go contrary to, to the will of God. And that surely is what's meant by this story of this um, ass who sees an angel which uh, supposedly a great prophet was unable to see. And the angel told Balaam how wrong he had acted in going with the messengers to Balak. He wished to return, but the angel said, No, go with these men, and see that thou speak no other thing than I shall command thee. On his arrival, he was received by Balak, who led him up to the high places of Baal, of Baal the god of that locality. And there seven altars were erected, and a calf and a ram offered on each. And whilst Balak stood by the burnt offering, Balaam retired to consult Almighty God. On returning to Balak, he looked upon the camp of Israel and he pronounced a, pro a, a prophetical blessing. And Balak said to him, What is this that thou doest? I sent for thee to curse my enemies, and instead of a curse, thou utterest a blessing. Balak then took him to another place, thinking that he might curse them from some other point. Sacrifice was again offered, and Balaam again retired to consult the Lord. And upon his return, he looked upon the tents of Israel and cried out, How beautiful are thy tabernacles, O Jacob, and thy tents, O Israel! He that blesseth thee shall be blessed, and he that curseth thee shall be accursed. Balak was angry with Balaam, and refused to give him the promised reward. The prophet told him that he could only speak that which God put into his mouth. Though Balaam blessed the Israelites, 
he tried to bring about their ruin, nevertheless, and he invited the Moabites to send their women amongst them and to allure them into sin, which they did. And among other sins, they worshipped Belphegor, uh, and God sent a plague which destroyed 24,000 people. And at the command of Moses, many others who had sinned were slain by the judges of Israel. Of all those who were included in the first numbering of the people, now only Joshua and Caleb remained, so that the defined decree condemning all to die in the wilderness had been fulfilled. And Moses, by the command of God, ascended to Mount Nebo, and there he was allowed to view the land which had been promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Even although, by his impatience, by great mystery, that this great and holy man, the greatest of all the patriarchs, was forbidden by Almighty God to enter into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there. And by the commandment of the Lord, he was buried by God himself in the valley of the land of Moab, so that no man has known his sepulchre until the present day. Indeed, so great was the renown of Moses, like all great men, of course, so greatly loved and appreciated after his death that God himself buried him so that his tomb should not become a temptation to the Israelites to be a place of worship and that this great prophet of God might come for them a stumbling stone in their surrender to him. And alas, of course, that was proved to be the case of the, of the Jews at the time of our Lord, who were unable to recognize their Messiah, and in order to excuse themselves, appealed to their fidelity to Moses. So here we have the greatest figure of the Old Testament. This great Moses, who was a humble man, a humble Hebrew, the son of a slave, elevated certainly to the court of the Egyptians, but who was soon to return to a life of, uh, of, uh, of humble obscurity, or would have been humble obscurity, had not God again intervened and raised him up, as he was raised up from the waters of the Nile, raised him up, from the desert, from his, from, from his looking after sheep, in order to be the great liberator of the chosen people. He neither sought this for himself, he sought rather obscurity, he was afraid and he was, he was reluctant to take upon himself the call, the vocation which Almighty God had given, uh, had given to him. But once he did accept it, he revealed great courage, great tenacity, and great moral fervour, so strong and courageous as to forge into a nation a, uh, the undisciplined horde of mutually suspicious uh, slaves who were his people and forge them into a community which has a, uh, been a, uh, impossible to dissolve at a break even until these very days a great lawgiver under God a great military and political leader a prophet truly really the founder again under God of the religion of the Old Testament In his life, as we've already referred to, we see a, a resemblance of another prefiguration of the life of our blessed Lord. As a child, he was condemned to death as a baby by order of a cruel king, just as our blessed Lord himself was to be. He forsook the royal court of the Egyptians, just as our Lord forsook the royal court of heaven, in order to come to save us, his people who are slaves of sin. 
He freed them from their slavery through the wonderful miracles which he performed and standing out particularly, of course, is the miracle of the Red Sea, which again is a symbol of baptism that we pass through the waters out of the bondage of Egypt, out of the bondage of sin and enter into the uh, promised land which God has prepared for us. He is the great advocate of the people through his intercession, through their, on their life's journey. He leads them by his teaching, by his miracles, and fortifies them, forgives or begs Almighty God to forgive them their sins and to lead them forward to union with Almighty God as Moses led them towards the promised land.